Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm excited to share with you today. I'm just going to open in a word of prayer first. God, we just thank you um, that we're in a country that we're able to meet freely like this, a place where we can come and inquire of you, Lord, a place where you can meet us, a place where your words can be shared. We just ask today, Lord, that as I speak, um, that they, these words will be words anointed for someone's heart, soften their hearts and their ears today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'm going to read a passage of scripture. Our focus is in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. And so they'll be on the screen. Um, and so you can read them there, but they're in the ESV version. And so if you want to open your Bibles, you can follow along as well. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Today, we're looking at another parable in our series entitled The Storyteller. Jesus was a storyteller. He used parables, which are just stories for common people, um, taking a teaching like this and bringing it down to their level. And so this parable lands at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was basically Jesus' big talk for everybody. It encompassed basically the entire law. And so... This was definitely a teaching that happened to a huge amount of people, and so it kind of perplexed the audience, though. Um, the reason it perplexed the audience was Jesus was speaking phrases kind of like these ones. You've heard that it was said of those of old, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. It was also said, but I say to you. All throughout the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly, seemingly, rewriting the law for the people. Now, Jesus came to fulfill the law, and that is true, but he outlines in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, that nothing will pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away. Yet, here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's seemingly changing that law. Not only would that have caused the crowd to step back, kind of scratch their heads, not really understand. Uh, it's not like he was changing the law in a lateral fashion. He wasn't, like when we change policies nowadays to have more inclusive language, he wasn't making a shift like that. Um, he was creating upside-down teachings. Now, what, what does that mean? Upside-down teachings are teachings saying, the poor are rich. Love your enemies. Giving to the poor is like feeding Jesus, is like feeding a king. Now, the things I just shared, they were upside down, but they're achievable. You can give to the poor enough to make them rich. You can love your enemies, and you can feed the poor just like you were feeding Jesus. These are all achievable things. So even though they're upside down and kind of crazy, they can be done in someone's life. But Jesus pushes it further. He digs deeper. He goes to things that you can't see. 
He takes things that were external and now internalizes them. He talks about emotions. He talks about anger and lust. He takes things that physically, when you get angry, don't murder was the command. Don't kill. That's doable. You can get mad still, but you just don't act on it. Lust. Adultery is the command. Do not commit adultery. It's pretty easy to not cheat on your wife or your husband. You just don't do that. But now he says, if you even think about doing that, it's like you've committed it in your heart. He's taking things that were easy for them to accomplish, well, easy, um, easier to accomplish, and now making them harder, seemingly. He's starting to get a picture of what the crowd might have been thinking. They were good Jewish people up to this point. They were following Jesus. They didn't have anger. They weren't committing adultery. They were feeding the poor. They had no enemies, no divorce. All was looking good. Then cue Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That person that cut you off on church today, towards church today, and you whipped around them and got in front of them and brake checked them. Right? Who's done that? I have. And so, Jesus says, like, you didn't really do anything, but even if, even if you didn't do that, if you thought about doing that, who's thought about doing that before? Everybody hand goes up. And so, that is actually anger in your heart. That's like doing that thing, just thinking about it is what Jesus is doing here. So, I'm going to read from Matthew 7. Um, we kind of get a, starting to get a perspective as to what they're thinking, but this kind of outlines exactly what they thought after he was done. So Matthew 7, verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were amazed and astonished. Amazed here is in the passive form in Greek, ekpleso, this gives no indication of actual acceptance of his teachings. So even though they were amazed, it doesn't mean that they're like, ah, this teaching isn't for me. There's no indication that, oh, I'm amazed and I'm going to apply this right away. He was making claims that nobody before him had ever made. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Zechariah, they all had this phrase before they actually said anything or claimed anything true. This is what the word of the Lord says was how they preface things. Yet Jesus said things like this. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. He was speaking with such authority that he didn't need to preface it with, this is what the word of the Lord says, because he was actually God. They recognized the authority in his teaching. They were amazed and astonished. Yet there's no indication of acceptance of these words. They still had a doubting heart. A word that I think is better than amazed here is the word in the ESV is astonished. Astonished is the same as amazed because you still have that wow factor contained in that word. But, and then there's the sense of awe, but you're still taken aback by it. You almost kind of like, because you can be amazed and it's all good. If you're astonished, you can be like, but like, eh, I don't really know. I'm kind of taken off guard. They may have been thinking things like this in the audience. I can't believe he just said those things. How can anyone hit that standard now? 
Was he serious? Was Jesus actually serious in the Sermon on the Mount? He's taking things that we could achieve and now internalizing them to the point where we can't even think about getting angry. He just took something hard and made it well impossible for me. Do we have a grasp as to what the crowd was feeling during the Sermon on the Mount? Is he serious? I'm going to reread our passage for today. This time I'm going to start at the actual beginning of the passage. You may have picked up on that. We started in verse 47, but this section in your Bible starts at verse 46. So I'm going to reread it now. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, I intentionally left out verse 46 when I read this the first time. I didn't just make an oops and went with it. Intentionally left it out because I believe that this verse is the crux of this passage and the Sermon on the Mount. Why do I say that? It's because of what is said there. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So Jesus gives us a few things here, first off. He acknowledges that the listeners have been with him for longer than just the Sermon on the Mount because they're confessing him as Lord, Lord. Secondly, they not only listen, but they recognize that his teachings were something to be acknowledged and confessed, again, calling him Lord, Lord. And thirdly, they realize that anyone who teaches like Jesus must be worthy of submitting to. And so they confess him as Lord, Lord. They're doing all the right things by saying these words. So what what is Lord then? Why is this the crux? So a definition of Lord, someone or something having power, authority or influence, a master or ruler. Synonyms for this. Leader, chief, superior, monarch, sovereign, King, emperor, prince, governor, commander, captain, overlord. You're getting the picture. This guy had it. He was somebody to follow and submit to. But did they really think about what they were saying? They confessed him having power. Jesus is king. He had authority. It came directly from God. He didn't need to preface it. He was speaking as God. Do they know what that means now? Jesus sees right through it. This isn't a small point. I'm not just harping on a word here. Jesus sees right through their confession. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you submit to me and then don't do anything that I tell you? He knows their hearts. It's partially why he takes the law that's so external and internalizes it on their hearts because these were achievable for a human before. Jesus is now making it impossible without him. 
Now this parable today, there's not a whole lot of teaching that needs to happen on it, it's pretty obvious. The wise builder is the person who digs deep down to the rock. Even in that time, they would have been walking around on sand in the dry season, and it would have felt like rock. It would have been solid. So the, the foolish builder isn't just somebody who's like, I don't want to do that. He, he felt like the foundation was strong enough, so they built their house on that. But the wise builder, the one who knows better, actually dug down to bedrock, laid their foundations up from there so that their house was stronger. It's the same for us today. That's why we build with a concrete basement. Right? It's solid. It holds our house from storms, like the flash hailstorms that happen in the middle of summer. So you confess me as Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I say. Jesus gives us three things here that we need to do. We need to listen. That's step one. So listening is simply being close enough to hear him, being open enough to actually hear words. Similar to what you're doing today, just being open, ready to listen. Step two, you have to hear, hear him. I can listen to Jacqueline talk, and she can talk. She likes to talk. That's good. I like to hear her talk. But sometimes I'm just listening. I'm not hearing her. And she'll say, are you listening to me? I'll say, yep, I'm totally listening to you. Yep, yep, uh, yeah, that's, uh, uh, yep, good, that's great. And then she'll say, what did I just say? Uh, crickets, nothing, I don't know. Uh, you said that you love me and that I'm a great husband? No, that's not what she said, because I wasn't listening, and, so, and I wasn't hearing her. I wasn't seeking her. Same is here for Jesus. They weren't seeking him. They were listening. They weren't connecting with him either. They were just there. They were saying the right things, close enough to say, yeah, yeah, Lord, Lord, I confess you, but they weren't doing anything about it. And so finally, if you listen and you hear, you form. You act on what you confess and hear. We all have a story, and so today I'm going to take a little bit of an opportunity to share a little bit of my story for you to maybe paint the wise and the foolish builder in a more contemporary light. So I grew up in New Brunswick, in a small town, surrounded by family. My house was here, my grandparents' house was here, my uncle's house was here, um, and then if, once I moved from my parents' house to another house, I lived next to Jacqueline's aunt and uncle. So it was a small town. We were super connected. I was in a safe place. Um, we went to church. The Bible wasn't really cracked in my household, though. We, we did it as tradition, and then sports took over. Sports became my God. Um, I was good at them. Um, before I continue, I'm not proud of everything in this story, and I'm not trying to elevate any of this, but, uh, so I have to tell it a certain way to make the effect happen, but don't, don't picture me as condoning what I'm about to share. This was... Part of my life, but not a part that I'm proud of. And so sports became my God. And because of that, church went to the wayside. Tournaments are on the weekend. And I grew in talent. And I grew in perceptive ability. So in class, I could pick out who the good kids were and who the bad kids were. And hopefully get paired with the good kids in class. So that when I did group projects, I could sit back. Knowing that this good Christian girl at the time, would do the whole project. I wouldn't have to do anything. I'd get a good mark. It'd be easy. 
which is good. So I did that and succeeded in that basically all through junior high. Whenever I was paired with her, I wasn't always with her. Um, and then I would play sports and do well, and then I would take that leadership on that team that I was given, and I would abuse it. I would raise myself up, make myself look good by making fun of others on the team that were less talented. I was a bully. I was popular. I became the class clown because of that. It wasn't because I was confident, but it was because I took that ability to influence and abused it by making jokes, bugging the teachers. There's some fun things I did. I hid chalkboard erasers on the top of the chalkboard for a short teacher. It was pretty funny. She liked that. It was fine. But um, did other things in class where I would plug my headphone into a card box and had the ace of spades in there and would start singing that out loud. Because we weren't allowed to have MP3 players at that time in class. So I faked it and then eventually got suspended for that. Vice principal walked in, you, you, and you, and I was one of those three, out. We had put two teachers out on stress leave that year. We were, we were awful. It got so bad that I even befriended a person in grade nine on our longer lunch hours, solely to steal from his book bag. He always got $10 a day for lunch. We had two-hour lunches. I was a teenager. I was hungry. Blah, blah. Justified away however I want. I befriended him so that when he put his book bag down in tech class, I could go and I knew where he kept his change. And so I would take some. We had flip schedules, so some days it was for snack. Some days I took enough to buy another lunch. Now this sounds terrible, but for a kid who was popular and a class clown and a sports fanatic, I was at the top of my game. Up until now, clean, clear sailing, and then all of a sudden my brother started to take us to church. He was a kid I probably would have bullied in school, um, and so he fit in at youth group, and he found a, people that liked him for who he was and appreciated him, and so we started to go to church, and my parents were like, well, if my kids are going to church, we should go to church. Um, and so they started to take me. Every Sunday was a fight. I did not want to be there. These are the people I made fun of. I don't want to be associated with these people. All the while still succeeding well at school and doing everything else. And then life started to change a little bit. Girls were at church. Um, and so teenage boy, girls were at church. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can go. Um, and so uh, I started to go. There were two girls in particular. I was, I was a class clown and popular, but I wasn't confident, right? And so I was talking to the other girl that I liked and told her that the other girl that I, I was okay with either at that point. And so um, I was talking to this other girl who was actually a cousin of the other girl that I liked and told her that I liked this girl instead because I didn't want to be confident enough to tell her. Um, long story short, I married this girl. And so, uh, and this girl was actually her cousin, so I still know her. Anyway, and so, um, small town, right? And so, uh, God used that and has blessed me with that, with a wife that I can't be more happy with. And so, I thank him for that. But that started the storm stage in my life. And because of that girl who was a Christian, I eventually became a Christian and got baptized. And then the storm started. That year, miraculously, my parents couldn't afford basketball. Like, basketball's not that expensive, right? But they couldn't afford it. So I lost my God. I lost sports. Still was the class clown, 
was living in this dual world of Christian, but still like that guy at school. And then with that, I went to a retreat on a weekend because a lot of sports. So I went to a winter retreat with youth group on weekend. And then I remember the illustration that was shared. I can't remember the message, but the illustration was my youth pastor's boyfriend at the time grabbed a dead heart, physical heart, cow's heart, held it up and said, God can make this alive in you. This heart is your heart without Jesus. And with me, you'll come to find out that when I get something that I'm like, ah, I get that, I flip the switch and that's it. There's no turning back. And so I flipped that switch at that point. And there were friends there that did that too. And then I went back to school and the storm hit again. All those friends that were there made me popular because it was the class clown left me. All of a sudden, I wasn't that guy swearing and making jokes in class. All of a sudden, I wasn't the guy bullying all those other kids. I was actually being nice to those kids. I wasn't the guy that had loose change all the time to help other people out. I was the guy whose parents couldn't afford basketball anymore. And so all of that hit, and my entire identity was stripped. But, so that's my foolish builder. My house is wrecked. It's gone. Like, there's nothing left of that life to the point where I left and went to a school, a Christian school. That Christian school was $100 plus a month for me to go. Somehow the next year my parents could afford that. I don't know how they did it. Uh, I still don't know how they did it, but they were at a point where they couldn't afford to buy $100 shoes for a year of seasons, for a season of basketball, to the point where they could pay over $100 a month for me to go to school, where school was previously free. And so I started to build that foundation immediately, that new foundation on Jesus. Grew up through that school. Um, still uh, was connected with some sports in some ways. And so the irony of my best friend became that guy that I made fun of on my basketball team. One of my good friends when I go home is that girl that did the projects for me. God allowed those relationships to heal and I am so thankful for that. I went off to university, still in my hometown, um, and then I also was still building that foundation, heavily involved in youth group, volunteered basically from high school, never left youth group kind of deal, and still in it. And so, uh, forever a youth. And so, uh, I did that, and then I got married in 2011, still in that small town, neighbors to aunt and uncle, still in a huge comfort zone. And then we had a little bit of a struggle where Jacqueline was trying to get into dental school. And this was her dream since she was super young and just wasn't happening. She was upgrading, taking more courses, working extremely hard. And I was kind of like, well, I'm not going to start youth ministry. I don't want to just bail a month later when we get into a university somewhere else. So I was just working. And then finally got to the point where it was a couple of years and we're like, all right, God, we're going to apply to different avenues and just open a door. Just show us one door. And he did. He gave us one door. The U of A, Jacqueline got into a master's, and so we moved. Like, we found out like a month before we had to move, and we were on a short-term mission trip the week before, almost got scammed out of money because we're small town, super naive, didn't even check the address that this person in England wanted money for. And so uh, we were at a short-term mission trip and then scrambling at night at our billet's house to find an apartment to move out the next week with. Found one, moved out here, and on the way out, the storm started again. 
I'm homesick, obviously. I've lived in the same house for like 20-some years of my life and then one other house right beside family the whole time. And then I come out here on the way and stay with family and end up having to break up a fist fight in front of people because my cousins are stupid. And <laughs> so I had to actually do that and like just made me more and more homesick. Like the only family that's close are just animals. And so no friends, living in a big city, I'm a small town boy, I'm feeling lost every time you step outside and you're like, White Ave is also 82nd Ave, why can't people just use the name? Like, why do you have to be so different? And so, and I don't have any internet for two weeks, so I'm a 21st century kid, like I got nothing to do. And so, um, I did get a job, started working, but then that job took me away from the only other comfort that I had, which was a wife, and made me work up in Fort McMoney. And I was there for three weeks, and so, I was away, I had nothing left. I was still very homesick, but I was working. And then the biggest gust in my entire life in a storm hit me, full blast. I get a call, somebody comes running around the corner, I'm doing inventory, I get a call and it says, your pastor's on the phone. I've told everybody at work by this point that I want to be a pastor. Ha ha guys, that's hilarious. Yeah, the only phone here and my pastor's on it from New Brunswick, good one. No, seriously bro, like your pastor's on the phone. And so immediately my mind goes to my grandfather's probably passed away. All right, they're calling me to let me know. I'm mentally preparing. It's going to be fine. I get the phone, and my pastor says, I don't really know how to tell you this. Um, so if you get, get a call like that from a pastor, it's not going to be good. Um, and so he says, your younger brother's passed away. Your 21-year-old younger brother your younger brother of 21 who was moving out to live with you next week, your younger brother of 21 who had struggled with getting away from stuff, who's gonna move with you, who had a bed set up in my apartment already, has died. No explanation, we still don't know why. It's a single car accident, his phone was in his pocket, he was not drunk, he was not high. There's no real reason. It wasn't foggy, no animal damage to the car, they, we don't know. I immediately sink, what? What? Like, like, why now? And then the next words, because the pastor is just kind of silent, he doesn't know what to say. This is, so this pastor is actually my best friend's dad, and then he has a son the same age, so we're super connected, and he's just like, he's rocked, he has no idea. I, the next words that come out of my mouth, I don't know how or why, are there must be, be a plan for this, God has a plan. Now who's stupid? Those are the words that come out of my mouth, like who in the right mind goes there immediately? You're raw, and that's what came out. And through the next few months, God worked on my heart. Worked through that loss, and solidified a calling that was a battle up until that point. A calling to youth ministry, a calling to impact kids at a point where they're ready to hear about Jesus. Same as my brother was ready. And like usual, I flipped that switch. Started Taylor in January of that year. That was October. So God removed comfort from me. He had to remove family support. He had to remove my closest 
earthly relationship with Jacqueline, and then he had to remove my brother in order for me to just soften my heart enough to confess him, Lord, Lord, but actually do what he's telling me to do. The only reason my house stood at that point was because I had built the foundation up to that point. These stories are obviously clear contrast. They are true. But the reason my house stood in the second storm, the way worse storm, was because I listened. I was close enough to Jesus. I heard him. I sought him. I connected with him. I prayed. I read my Bible. I went to church. I did the youth group stuff. That's seeking him. And I formed. What he gave me, I actually went and did stuff with. In storms, we're taught like Jesus to draw closer to our foundation. Jesus, in his biggest storm, went to Gethsemane and drew as close as he could to God to the point where he was struggling that he was sweating blood. We're taught in any storm in our life to get close to the foundation, get in the bunker. The bunker's always in the basement. It's never on the top floor. Like, you draw close to that foundation and you hold on, and since you've built that foundation on Jesus, which I hope everyone here can do, your house will stand. Yes, shutters, shutters will get ripped off. Shingles will get ripped off. Windows may break, but your house will stand because you've listened, you've heard, and you've formed. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for the words that you gave us. Help us to listen, Lord. Help us to be close enough to you to hear where we seek you, Lord, where we try to connect with you. And Lord, where we take those words that have impacted our lives and we share them with others and we act on what you've done in our lives. Lord, we love you. In your name, amen.